Thanks for coming out. No need to apologise, Alice. Just crumble if you'd like. <laughs> yeah, go on. <laughs> Don't be shy. Um, so, we've been uh, talking so far in formation this year about the Bible. It's a curious book, a bit odd in places, sometimes very boring in others, if we're honest. Uh, sometimes gory, sometimes um, uh, very masculine, <laughs> patriarchal, uh, violent, transformative, beautiful. It is. It contains just this this mixture of the human experience and also uh, the sense of somehow God present in the story um, as well. And so, I've been trying to figure out what to do with that. In many senses. It's much easier just to say, hey, uh, the Bible says it. How does, this, how does that little saying go? The Bible says it, I believe it, and that settles it. I don't know, that was always the thing that got told at like uh, those youth rallies back in the day. Um, but I always found that kind of mantra applied really well to some passages and not so well to others. Um, so what we've been trying to do instead of that is really enter into a conversation with one another and with scriptures and see rather than what kind of book do we want it to be, what kind of book actually is it? And then how do we find God present in it? So um, that's kind of what we've been talking about. Uh, if you've been coming along, you'll recognize some of these topics. And if not, this gives you a sense of where we've, where we've been. Uh, and so... This idea of what kind of book is the Bible is one that I guess has been woven, it's a theme that's been woven throughout all of our conversations. Uh, and instead of seeing it as this instruction manual or this just this book that we pick up and read and pluck out principles for life willy-nilly, um, actually it's instead an invitation into a wisdom tradition. It's a, it's not a book, it's a collection of many books written over a long period of time by a number of different authors. And it is this long tradition of talking about, discussing, and sometimes even debating uh, God and the human experience and trying to make sense of life. And so when we read it, the hope is that we enter into that conversation and that we too wrestle with those big questions and we ground ourselves in this text uh, as a way to help shape those conversations. Um, so last time, which was a couple of weeks ago, we talked about all the violence in the Bible. I um, sort of, uh, what did we do? We, we made all of, the char- all of our favorite characters in the Bible, including God, uh, came out of that one pretty badly. <laughs> but <laughs> with, with the, with, it's, it's very much connected to what we're going to talk about this time, which is the sense that actually what we see in Scripture is not just one unitary idea of God where everybody from Abraham to Moses to David to Jesus to Paul, everybody sees God exactly the same way and believes all of exactly the same things about God. Uh, and that was, So that means we can just dip in and out of it anywhere we like. But what we actually see is this uh, wrestle with God. Who is God? What is God like? What do we believe about God? What does God want of us? Um, and... There's this to and fro that happens in the text itself and you actually see this evolving sense of 
what it is that we actually believe about God. And in particular, that comes to a climax in the Jesus story. And so we're going to talk a little bit about Jesus this evening. You might remember him from such places as Christianity um, and the Bible. So we're going to talk a bit about Jesus and the Bible. Not so much tracing Jesus' life and story and ministry and, and so on, as much as uh, how does this idea, this, this person of Jesus, impact on the way we might actually read Scripture itself? Uh, so that's what we're going to try and do. Does that make sense? Yeah? Cool. Uh, as always with formation, uh, this is a conversation. Although I have the microphone right now, you can wrestle it off me if you want. Uh, or you can ask questions or add in comments, uh, and there'll also be a bit more time for discussion as we go along too. Uh, I want to start maybe just with a reflection on this passage in the Gospel of John, which uh, is the first chapter of John, the fourth Gospel. And does anyone remember how John 1 begins? Murmur, murmur, murmur. <laughs> I heard someone say in the beginning. Hmm? In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was, was God. And this tells us clearly that the Bible is divine. No, it doesn't. Because the passage isn't about the Bible. Uh, the passage is about Jesus. And in fact, what we, what we kind of discover, this phrase, the Word of God, is used not specifically in the Bible about itself because it can't really refer to itself as a whole because when it's written, it doesn't exist as a whole, right? Um, but this phrase, the Word of God, refers repeatedly to the things that God says. And so whether the word of God came through the prophets, whether the word of God came through Moses or however the word of God came to the people, uh, this was the word, words that God had spoken or at least the way that we had heard them. Um, but what John sort of captures here is that the ultimate sense of what the word of God is, is Jesus. So I find this helpful. Now, there's lots of things we can say about John 1 and what John's trying to do here. Um, but I think one of the things I recognize when I read Scripture is in some way what the text is doing is not trying to sell you on itself that the Scripture is not God. The, the, the story, the text, ultimately is bearing witness to the story of Jesus. So... The direction is is in towards the story of Jesus and the way that in the Christian tradition this reshapes everything else. Uh, and so when I'm thinking about the Bible, I'm thinking about the way this story leads us to this character, Jesus, and what that, that means for the reshaping of our views of God and of faith and of everything else. Is that, is that all right? Yeah? Cool. I think that's important because sometimes it can sound for people, I think, like the point of the Bible is the Bible. That the Bible is the thing that's going to um, change us. 
And we're going to talk next time about the scripture and our transformation and the way in which our engagement with scripture does lead to our transformation. But it's not because the book is a magic book, but because somehow we meet God, we find God present in the story. It's still God who does the transforming, not the um, not the physical book, which none of us have sitting on our laps or tables anyway anymore. Um. All right, so what I want to do is I want to do a few things. I want to talk about how Jesus uses Scripture. Because if Jesus is the Word of God, that I find that a helpful place to start. Um, how some of the other New Testament writers uh, read Scripture in the light of Jesus, or at least I want to give a couple of examples of, of Paul. Uh, and then think for us how this Jesus story um, might impact in, uh, the way we read all of Scripture. I'm just going to like swivel. I just realized I'm like, yes, yes, everyone, but you're all over here. Um, uh, yeah, to you personally. I'm sorry, now I've turned away from you. Um, uh, and what we're going to do is then have a few questions that might be helpful to you when you approach Scripture in light of our conversation and then see where we get to from there and have a bit of a chat. All right. So, um, one of the first thing, one of the first things that sticks out to me when when I think about Jesus and the way he uses scripture. Now, in Jesus' time, uh, what is scripture? The Old Testament, the Torah. What else have we got? Anything else? Um, there wasn't a settled Old Testament in exactly the way that we might think about it now from Genesis through to Malachi. Um, but there were a collection of these Jewish writings. Uh, so often you will sometimes hear them in, in, in talk about um, the Law and the Prophets, for example. So the Law and the Prophets were the Torah, which is the first five books of the Old Testament. And then the Prophets, um, so we have Isaiah and a whole lot of others. And then we do have some additional wisdom writings and, and other writings as well. So you have your Psalms and your Proverbs and Lamentations and Job and some of the wisdom texts and so on. Uh, and there are others at that time circulating around in the first century as well that are often drawn on the wisdom of Solomon um, and other texts that were informing the way in which first century Jewish teachers uh, wrestled with, in particular, the Torah, because a lot of what the later texts were doing was helping them to make sense of the law as it has been given to them. Um, does that make sense? Yeah? Okay. So, this is Jesus' time. He's a Jewish rabbi. Although it's a little, it's a little blurry as to how formal he ended up being with his rabbi training because he went off and was a carpenter for quite a while, which was not a classic rabbinical training situation. Um... But in terms of the way they, they saw him and followed him and the way he behaved and the way he taught, he functions very much in this mold of the first century Jewish rabbi slash prophet slash apocalyptic kind of uh, itinerant, roving, wild sage. Yeah. Um, one of the things he does, one of the, uh, Matthew's uh, first sermon really, or collection of sayings, is this Sermon on the Mount, very famous text. If you're in formation for a couple of years ago now, so this is like the, the old school kind of committed 
formational peeps. Uh, we did a series on this, working through the Sermon on the Mount. And one of the things we, we bump into in the Sermon on the Mount is this repeated phrase, you have heard it said, but I say to you. Yeah? Do you, does that sound familiar to, to anyone if you've ever read the text? Uh, what are some examples of you have heard it said, but I say to you? Does anyone remember? Okay. The adultery and lust conversation, always a popular one. Um, yes, you have a, you've heard it said, and then what does he, he quotes the law, and then he says, but I say to you, and then he, he takes it in, a, in an interesting direction. Uh, and so we see that repeated, uh, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, which again is law in the Torah, but I say to you, turn the other cheek, go the second mile. Um, if someone sues you for your cloak, give them all your clothes. bit over the top from my perspective. but <laughs> um, You have heard it said, uh, don't murder, but I say to you, don't hate. Uh, and there's a couple of things going on there. I think Jesus is trying to get at the heart behind the law rather than the law itself. The law, which is this behavioral mechanism, uh, management mechanism, these are all the things you must not do. Whereas Jesus is saying, well, actually, you'll feel like you're doing, maybe you feel like you're doing well because you're not murdering people. But if you're hating people, ultimately, where hatred takes us is to violence and murder anyway in the end. Um, but there's also the sense of, um, of pushing the conversation forward, right? What he's, he's not just entrenching the law as much as it is, in fact, pushing it forward, he's progressing us. So eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, that was cool for the time. That was a way to limit violence because of some, you know, in the ancient world, spirals of violence were very common, um, similar to today, I suppose, which is, you know, you come to my village and um, take out one of my friends, well, we'll go to your village and we'll take out your whole village in retribution. So eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth in the Torah is a way of limiting violence. You only get to do back what was done to you. It's a way of controlling, limiting violence so that we don't destroy one another in the ancient world. But by the time we get to the Jesus story, it's like, I think you're ready for a bit more than that. So here's a progression. Here's a move forward. Uh, and in that move forward, our view of God actually moves forward as well, I think. Does that make sense? Yeah? Um, so what Jesus is doing here is, in some sense, reinterpreting and reimagining. And he's speaking with quite some authority because he's going up against Moses, who apparently got all of these things from God himself. So that's bold. And... This is a part of why everybody was, you know, the scripture, uh, the, new, the gospels seem to repeatedly say everyone was amazed at the authority with which he teaches because he does. Sometimes he challenges and confronts some of the ideas that are present in the law itself that they've been given. Now, from a modern kind of, um, the modern tendency, especially in, in certain streams of Christianity, not all of them, but in certain streams that some of us are familiar with, uh, that's a difficult way to think about the Bible because isn't it all supposed to be this kind of thing that we can dip into and dip out of? And yet here, Jesus is engaging with it where he 
takes a text that we're familiar with and says, actually, I want to say something more. I want to move us past that. That was okay for then, but now we need to go to here. Um, and he does this in lots and lots of different ways, not just in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, we mentioned, I think, as a couple of times ago, we mentioned briefly the way he uses Isaiah 61 in his... So, Sermon on the Mount is Matthew's first kind of big talk from Jesus. And Luke, uh, it's when he go his first big talk is when he goes uh, into the synagogue and reads from Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is on me and has anointed me to preach good news to the poor and freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour, full stop, puts the scroll down, um, doesn't finish the clause, doesn't finish the sentence, and the year of vengeance of our God, which is supposed to, you know, the day of vengeance of our Lord or of our God, which is the last sentence of that phrase in Isaiah. Uh, and again, everybody's, he says, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing and he sits down and everybody's, you know, stunned and amazed. And I was like, it's a pretty short sermon to get everyone that, that kind of, <laughs> that overwhelmed. Uh, so maybe Luke's summarizing a little bit. Um, but there's this sense in which Jesus is here reading this text in Isaiah and says, you know what? I'm going to affirm this, but I'm not going, to, I'm, I'm not going with the vengeance part. We're going to move past that, which is provocative and interesting and curious. And I'm quite glad. Quite glad he clips the vengeance bit off. You might like a bit of vengeance, in which case you might have an issue with him. Um, there are other times when he clearly enters into the debates of the day. He enters into the conversation that is going on as people are trying to wrestle with the law and with scripture and with text and they're debating things and they're arguing about things. And Jesus um, doesn't say, look, there's only one way to read this. It's a plain, literal reading of the text, you guys. All right? and then tell them the answer. He enters into the debate, into the conversation. Um, often they're using that as a trap, and I guess that's, the, that's often the function of the, uh, the kind of person who wants to use the Bible to trap people, to get you to stumble, to get you to trip over something and say, see, I knew you didn't believe it. Um, so often they, they test him with these things to try and get him to do that, but he, he has ways, he's quite, he's quite a smart guy, has some ways of getting around that, of answering in ways that turn the question back on them or that turn the, the issue back to them. Um, yes. Uh, one of those, perhaps it's worth mentioning, is... We've, we've mentioned along the way that in the Old Testament in particular, there's this ongoing wrestle with what is our stance supposed to be towards um, the unclean or the out what makes someone unclean and then what is our stance towards them? What do we do with the outsider? Um, and so even when Jerusalem falls, is destroyed in, uh, the ex in the time of the exile when Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon, if you've read um, your Old Testament, uh, at, at one point there, towards the end of the story, Babylon comes in, lays siege to Jerusalem, and eventually Jerusalem is destroyed and the walls crumbles and the temple is burnt down and they're all carried off into exile. And when they come back to rebuild, there are actually two competing lines of thought about what we're supposed to do when we get back. 
And both of them are found within the Old Testament in Ezra and Nehemiah. Um, there's a, we must keep out all the foreigners because we must, now we're returning home, must protect our identity and preserve our identity and we must repel anyone who is not purely us. And then there's another tradition which is saying, no, I think we should include and reach out and welcome the alien, as it's often called, um, or the foreigner, and welcome them and treat them with love and respect. And so there's these two accounts given to us, which provide us with the opportunity to have a conversation. Why are there these two accounts? What's driving the mindset of those two different ways of seeing things and of trying to make sense of uh, their experience? What view of God drives and shapes those uh, decisions? So there's that kind of conversation going on in the Old Testament and that's connected to a lot of boundary marker type conversations. Uh, a lot of the holiness language, um, which in its um, intention, I think, and what I think Jesus seems to be saying, is that holiness is about uh, love and um, compassion. But for some, holiness becomes, uh, you can't, enter because you're not pure. And so there's this tension between purity and inclusion that takes place throughout the Old Testament. So whether it's the foreigner, whether it's the unclean person, whether it's the sinner, and you see that kind of language has made its way into the New Testament quite significantly because there's always the language of the sinner, uh, the sinful woman, the unclean, uh, the... Um, the lepers who would have to go around, and that was you know, partly medical, uh, trying to protect the spread of disease so they'd have to ring their bell and, and yell unclean everywhere they went. Um, but not just unclean because of conditions like that, but people could become ritually unclean, could become unclean because of various acts that they've committed, all sorts of ways to say you can no longer come and participate on the inside of something because you're unclean, at least until some... Animals are killed. Maybe we can kill some animals and that'll tidy things up a little bit. Um, so, so Jesus enters into a world where that's the kind of conversation that's going on uh, and repeatedly seems to side with the includer, the inclusion, the welcome them in, bring them in, don't push them out, bring them in, even to the leper, reaches out and the touch and the embrace and the draw in and the restore. Uh, whether it's the demoniac who's possessed by legion, um, which obviously the name of Roman troops. Um, you know, that's another story. Uh, so you've got the demoniac who's living out by himself, repelled out into uh, to live in the tombs uh, by the townspeople, and yet Jesus restores, heals, reunites, brings back in. Um, whether it's the women who were marginalised, who were unclean because of um, health conditions, whether it was whoever it was, this consistent act to bring in, to include. And the thing he so often names as the most problematic sin is the efforts that the religious make to exclude those people and push them out. So, which is this wonderful irony, isn't it? The very thing that they thought was the most religiously devout thing was the very thing Jesus keeps picking on as the most problematic thing that they do. 
Um, which I find curious as well and challenging sometimes. Um, okay, so we've got him reinterpreting, reimagining, pushing us forward. We've got him uh, quoting text and clipping bits off that he doesn't like. <laughs> and not just arbitrarily, right? Because this is coming out of a compelling vision of what he believes about God. Um, we've got him entering into the conversations of the day. Uh, there are large chunks of scripture he just never refers to at all, uh, or what we would call the Old Testament. So he doesn't do a lot of quoting from you know Joshua and Judges and the the um, the conquest and the wiping out of you know you don't hear Jesus doing a lot of and then God said go and wipe out all the women and children and and animals and people and um, that doesn't feature a lot in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, and then fundamentally, I guess one that I want to pick up on as well is the way he reinterprets what a Messiah or a Christ is even supposed to be and do. So if you've been around for a while and around in the conversation, you know that the expectation of the Messiah in the first century is that they will be a deliverer. They're under the oppression of Roman rule. And so what they're waiting for is a Messiah who will be a revolutionary, who will lead them in an uprising to overthrow the Romans and to reestablish the throne of David and to rule on the throne of David forever. And they don't just pluck these ideas out of the air. They're reading the prophets who talk about um, unto us a son is born and for unto us a child is given and the government shall be upon his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, I'm just quoting the words of a song we used to sing when I'm young, but it's from Isaiah, which is how I know it's in the text. I was just going through the tune in my head going, how does the, how does the scripture go? And he shall be called wonderful. <laughs> that'll, that'll go well on the recording. Um, these quite triumphant visions of one who will come, who will deliver us. Because we're in a tough spot at this point in the history of Israel. So that the, the hope that they have is that in the future, one is going to rise up who will deliver us in some kind of way. Now, um, that kind of expectation ferments and it's grounded in a particular reading of the Old Testament texts and, and other texts of the prophets. Uh, Jesus doesn't really play that, uh, play that game at all. Um, he interprets those profoundly differently and he and he adds a few more in um, texts that were never supposed to be about the Messiah he decides are actually about the Messiah they're about him so one of those is Isaiah 53 the story of the suffering servant um, you know he grew up like a uh, oh now does the, the text go on uh, like a shoot from the from Jesse and it's 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 filled with imagery of coming from David but then it's it is about this one who, who suffers uh, and somehow through his suffering brings reconciliation, reconciliation and peace. Now, no one in the first century thought that was about the Messiah. It's not supposed to be about the Messiah. Um, that was about Israel. Israel were the servant who grew out, who grew out of Jesse and David and, and so on, and who were suffering, but somehow through their suffering, they were going to still fulfill God's purposes in the world. That's what they believed. 
because that text doesn't go with the other messianic texts. It doesn't go with the government will be upon his shoulders and he will be wonderful. Um, and so there's no record, I don't think, of any um, Jewish thinker up until the time of Jesus who thinks Isaiah 53 is about the Messiah. And yet Jesus says, actually, this passage is about the Messiah. <laughs> Um, and and takes a text that no one has read that way before and reimagines it in the light of his own experience and of his own story and of what he feels called to be and to do, which I think is quite beautiful and challenging and interesting. Yes. All right. So this is Jesus using the Bible. It's not, not as we know it, but... This is Jesus engaging with the texts. And again, I guess what we see here is something we've been talking about all the way along, which is this is not just this text, like a textbook that just gets used to win arguments all the time. It's this tradition to enter into and participate in. And that's what Jesus is doing. And he's doing that with a particular vision of God in mind that comes partly out of his reading of the text and partly, I think, out of his experience of God, his, his communion with God. Does that make sense? Yeah? You're all with me so far? Or at least listening? Um, okay. So, what about some of the other New Testament authors? Well, in particular, let's let's think about Paul. There's a few places where for Paul, um, well, in fact, Jesus, so Paul is a learned, another learned Jewish teacher who comes from a very rigid school of Jewish learning, very upset by the whole Jesus situation initially, um, not a big fan of this at all, uh, to the point of, you know, when, when so in the book of Acts, You'll, some of you will be familiar with this. Um, Stephen, who seems he's a good guy, um, who uh, gets brought before the people because they get a bit upset at all his Jesus talk. Uh, and he preaches this uh, sermon, essentially. He preaches this message, which gets him stoned, gets him murdered by the, by the mob, who are not fans of Stephen or of Jesus. Uh, it's actually a pretty confronting chat he gives. If you go and read Stephen's talk, you're like, mm, it wasn't going to win him any friends in that particular moment. Um, but his big problem was really, you guys are supposed to be religious peoples, but you've missed the whole, you've, you've misread the text, essentially. You haven't let this experience of Jesus reshape um, our understanding of God and of the Messiah. And they get very upset and they stone him. And then um, the ones who are very proud of that go and sort of lay things at Paul's feet and say, oh, wasn't this very impressive what we just did? And Paul's there approving. So this is the kind of guy Paul is. He's, he's the kind of guy at this point in time who um, the, the stoners, hmm. <laughs> yeah, uh, are looking for the approval of Paul. They're like, did we do the stoning good enough? And he's the one who's kind of, yes, yes, it was a good stoning, you know. Uh, it's pretty ruthless. 
And yet he has, and he's and he's a learned Jewish scholar, and yet he has this mystical, weird, strange, transformative experience while he's going along to find some more Christians to kill. Um, and and this experience changes everything for him. And what happens is he obviously goes back and rereads all of the text in light of this profound transformative experience that he has and the things that he then learns about God in light of that. And so we've talked a little bit uh, throughout our conversation together about the way that experience um, intersects with our reading of Scripture, uh, that we don't actually read it in isolation from our actual experience uh, and sometimes our experience of God and of one another and of life. And so this is what happens for Paul. And he, he rereads everything in light of this. So Paul, who's a good Jewish scholar, uh, finds himself writing an entire um, bunch of, you know, like in, if you read Romans, a very complicated letter. Um, Paul's a complicated kind of guy. And the law for Paul which previously was everything to him, now in fact just becomes something that shows us how in need of Jesus we were. So that's, that's he reinterprets his entire tradition uh, because of his, his experience that he has meeting in some way in this vision of, well, we don't even really know exactly what he has a vision of, but there's a, there's a light and there's a, knocks him off his horse and, uh, and he goes blind. Just like an anti-vision. Gee, I've got some good ones. And so in light of this experience, and then what happens after that experience, he he reshapes his entire way of understanding the text. For him, Jesus changes everything about what God is like, about because if God is present in the story of Jesus, um, then, then then that moves us forward in terms of our, vision of who God is, of what God is like, of what God's up to, of what we're supposed to be doing. Uh, and, and I think this shapes a lot of why Paul is often so um, self-effacing. He often refers himself to himself as the chief of sinners. I mean, he does come from a pretty rugged um, early religious life. Pretty violent guy for the Lord. Yet his experience of Jesus reshapes his understanding of God and of the text. And if that's good enough for Paul, then I feel like that's a good invitation for us too. That our experience of coming to know about this Jesus that we read of, but also coming in some way to mystically know this Christ, uh, should in fact enable us and encourage us in the way that we read everything else that we read in Scripture. To say, let's reread this in light of now what we know about God and the story of Jesus. Um, so for Paul, the law becomes a, he, he gets himself, it's, it's, quite a, it's quite a funny conversation if you, if you read Romans. He's having a conversation with himself, uh, with an imaginary opponent. Um, and so he keeps bouncing back and forth, asking himself questions and then asking himself questions and then answering them. It's occasionally going off on big tangents. It's wonderful. He just gets into the middle of a sentence and then he, you can see he has a thought. 
because the sentence doesn't finish and it's just a hyphen and then he just goes on this massive tangent for about 12 verses and then sort of comes back around again. It's brilliant. Um, you can see him dictating because he he's dictating the letter and you can frustrated scribe sitting there. Where are we going with this? Um, but what he's trying to do is navigate how do we, I actually recognize now that the law was not the whole thing. I thought the law was the whole thing, but the law is not the whole thing. In fact, what the law did was show me that I'm, all the law did was show me that I'm not very good at following the law. Um, and his realization that in fact Christ was somehow showing us what God is like meant that he saw the law itself in a totally different light, incapable of doing what he be previously believed it would do. Occasionally he gets a bit more creative with his imagining of how Jesus reshapes his reading of the text. And so I think we mentioned a few weeks ago uh, the story of the rock, if you were here for that. Um, Moses in the wilderness and the rock, which he's supposed to speak to, but he hits with the stick, which God's not a big fan of. Um, looking out for the rocks. And the water flows out and uh, everybody drinks, which is great. For Paul... Uh, that rock does two things mysteriously. One is the rock then travels around with them. Uh, the rock that followed them in the wilderness, I believe is what Paul says, which is a beautiful imaginative reading of, of the text. In fact, there's a, there's a few Jewish traditions around that time that talk about uh, these Exodus stories in this kind of way. So he's a part of that tradition. He's pulling on that kind of imaginative tradition. Uh, so you've kind of got this rock mysteriously sort of, I don't know whether he did it at night I used he. Rock might not have been a he, could have been a she. Um, sort of <laughs> quietly following the camp, you know. So then when they wake up the next morning, the rock's there again, ready to give them a good drink. Uh, and then Paul's next move is, and that rock was Christ. Um, which is awesome. Um, but now he's he's reading these Old Testament, he's reading these ancient stories, and imaginatively, in fact, finding Christ present in them, which I think is kind of beautiful. Christ becomes the source of sustenance and water for a people who are dying of thirst. It's beautiful. It's not a very good literal reading of the text. He'd fail if he was doing like a class at my Bible college, if he like, if that was his, you know, we set students exegesis where they have to, you know, take the text and then do good analysis. Paul would have failed for that one. Like, this is not an appropriate way to read the text, Paul. Clearly the rock is a rock. Um, but for Paul, the rock is, is Christ. It's a beautiful image, a beautiful metaphor found within this ancient story. All right. You going okay? Yeah? I find it quite sort of um, liberating, actually. Uh, encouraging. Interesting, curious. It invites me in and says, um, maybe there's something more going on here, which I think is good. Well, what's the time? You tracking so far? I reckon we have like a, like a two or three minute just stand and stretch. You don't have to stretch, but you're welcome to stretch. And then what I want to come back with is with, okay, well, if there's this wonderful imaginative reinterpretation going on, uh, what's to stop us just going crazy and wild and coming up with anything that we want 
That sounds like fun. Um, and for me, again, that comes back to Jesus. And so um, Jesus becomes, if you like, the interpretive lens through which we read all, all of the text. Uh, and then we'll have some questions that might be helpful to you as we consider how we read the Bible. And then we'll see where that goes. All right. Okay. All right. Here we are. Are there any crumbled portions left? It's all. Oh, there is. One portion left. Very appropriate amount of crumble made, Katarina. Perfect. Um, so we're talking about the Bible and what to do with it, what to do with Jesus. Um, a couple of things. So, so I mentioned just before the the break there that um, one of the things that happens whenever we start talking about making interpretive decisions or what we what we will take as being something that shows us what God is like and what we won't or so on, especially in light of a couple of weeks ago, we talked about violence and how some of the texts in the Old Testament, we actually have to say that was the way they understood things back then, but not, might not be the way that we actually understand God as revealed in the story of Jesus. What's to stop us from just picking and choosing? We just pick the nice bits and, and leave the rest. Um, well, in a sense, I guess it's at least it's honest to acknowledge that we do pick and choose a bit. Everybody picks and chooses to a certain extent. In that, um, there are just, you know, you probably don't even find, you know, if you were in, a, there's not many churches which will just preach out of the genealogy for six months. Um, because, <laughs> and it's all the prayer of Jabez was a good crack at uh, trying to do a, uh, do a sermon out of a genealogy passage. Uh, that was a Back in the day, reference for anyone remember the prayer of Jabez? Oh yes, a few takers. Good. Um, that was a big. That was hot. That was a hot in the evangelical world for a while. Tell you what, um, prayer of Jabez for your dog. There was even one of those books that came out. That was awesome. <laughs> oh, that you would bless me indeed. I think that was the prayer of Jabez. You see, but you can claim that for the pets in your house. I mean, that's a nice idea. Anyway, that's not in my notes. Uh, it's good for us to acknowledge that we're always, even the people who say they do a literal reading of everything, don't do a literal reading of everything. Um, everybody, in some sense, is always already making certain kinds of decisions about what certain texts mean, uh, where they get that meaning from, what bits they tend to read much more than other bits. Uh, everyone's always making those kinds of decisions. And so I think what's more helpful rather than saying, can we do that or not, because everybody does, is on what basis should we do that? Because I think that's a much healthier kind of conversation. Um, and so my suggestion is that from a Christian perspective, if Jesus is the Word of God, Jesus shows us ultimately what God is like. Then Jesus becomes the lens through which we read um, Scripture. And I think that's what we see in someone like Paul. I think that's what's happened for him, is that suddenly everything has changed because he's now reading everything through this experience he's had 
of Christ and also this now grappling with the story. If this Christ is in fact uh, revealing to us what God is like, then um, that's got to change everything. That's got to reshape everything. Um, so I want to offer some questions about how we might do that in a moment and see what you have to say about it. Uh, and then the last thing I want to say about this before we get to those questions is I mentioned earlier that Jesus offers a different vision really of what being a Messiah or being a Christ is. Uh, it's a different vision of the kingdom of God. It's not one built on taking power, but in fact, uh, self-giving love. Uh, and so there's this subversion, if you like, of these power structures and power dynamics that are always at work um, in systems and in society. Um, John is really this beautiful, it, it's written almost as a piece of theatre, if you read the Gospel of John. Um, and so you have these kind of scenes that shift and change almost like a, like a, like a play. And it's building towards the coronation of Jesus as king. Except the whole thing moves towards the coronation of Jesus as king is on the cross when his crown of thorns is put on. And so it's this... Now we read that, like, yeah, story of Easter, I know that one. Um, but it's this radical redefinition of what a king and a kingdom looks like. So uh, it tips everything up on its head and we see this all the way through the Gospels, in fact. Uh, and so it's the children who are welcomed instead of shunned. It's, as we mentioned before, the unclean, the marginalized, the women who are welcomed. It's, it's all of these acts of upending the way in which power is used to ma manipulate and oppress um, others. And so one of the questions in light of the story of Jesus that I find myself asking when I read uh, scriptural text is what are the power dynamics at play here? Um, especially when powerful people espouse their view of God um, that conveniently often works out to their benefit, then is that really uh, the kind of God we see in Jesus? So uh, these are the kind of questions that I find the story of Jesus brings to the surface for me that I ask myself. Uh, here are some questions for us to think about. When we read, the, now obviously this is, this is for passages that aren't the Gospels because the Gospels are literally about Jesus. So this is, might be more helpful for other parts of the Bible. The first question that I think, and this is, I think, one of the core questions of Christianity that we grapple with, that we wrestle with, that we think about. What kind of God do I see embodied in the Jesus story? And that question for me reshapes everything else. I think this is one of the most fundamentally transformative questions to ask uh, of the Gospels. What kind of God do I see embodied in the Jesus story? This is a question that I find myself continually coming back to as a theologian, as someone who teaches um, about this kind of stuff, I guess, uh, relatively frequently. This is the question I find myself circling back to most often. What kind of, what kind of God do I see embodied in the Jesus story? Um, and then... How could that impact on the way I interpret this passage of text? So, a couple of weeks ago we were talking about violence and asking ourselves the question, are we okay with, you know, when the, when the Israelites go into the promised land 
and they believe God has commanded them to wipe out every man, woman, and child in the land that they go into. Is this simply, you know, another face of God? He can be loving sometimes, but sometimes he can be a bit testy. Um, well, if I answer this first question, what kind of God? What kind of God do I see embodied in the Jesus story? Uh, for me, I guess that's a part of what it means to be a Christian: is to go with the vision of God that I see embodied in the Jesus story. And so then I read those passages and I and I think about that in relationship to the power dynamic we were just talking about before. And I say, well, I actually think that's an ancient view, an ancient understanding of God that not just Jesus, in fact, but I think the prophets start to push us beyond that. And then Jesus in particular propels us and says, there's a different way of understanding God. Than this. It's a part of the tradition. It's a part of the story. It's a part of the text but it's one to be wrestled with, engaged with, and even sometimes say, you might have heard it said, but I say to you. Yeah? Um, so when we're reading these other passages, I think for me, I have this, this idea of, okay, what kind of, what kind of God is Jesus revealing to us, talking about? The kind of God that is ultimately most manifest or shown or found in the love that people have for one another, uh, whether they be friend or enemy. <laughs> that love is the place where we most fully find God present. Well, then that means when I read some of these other texts, I have to say, well, actually there's something else going on here in the story. I asked myself this question, what would the Jesus character do or say if they entered this story? Um, so, whether it's um, marching around the walls of Jericho, blowing out trumpets and bringing the walls down and killing everybody inside, or whether it's whatever intense kind of story, whether I think about, you know, we talked a couple of weeks ago about the uh, some of our heroes and the way they treated the woman in their lives in the Old Testament texts. Uh, all of these stories that I read... What if I ask myself the question, what would the Jesus character do if Jesus wandered into the scene? If Jesus wandered into this story? Can I imagine Jesus on the front line of the conquest of Canaan saying, yes, yes, kill all the people? And I can't. That's not what comes to mind when I think of Jesus entering that story. And so then I have to go, okay, well, then I think something else. If Jesus for me is the word, then, then I have to reshape my understanding of what's going on, just as Jesus does and as I think Paul and other New Testament writers do. Does that make sense? Um, and then I guess this is, uh, this is where we might find Jesus in a rock. Um, how might Jesus be mysteriously, mystically present and at work within this story? So the aim here is not necessarily to then say, well, none of these stories are worth ever reading ever again. But instead, what we find is because this is the tradition, this is the sacred journey of people figuring out what God is like, what the human experience is like, and how to make sense of all of that. We might find Christ, we might find God popping up in all sorts of interesting ways in these stories. We might find 
Linda, you know, as a, as a big Richard Raw fan, um, among many other things, uh, Richard Raw talks a lot about the idea of the cosmic Christ that somehow, and this is in a sense in John 1 is a part of what's going on here, that this Jesus who we see in the first century in some ways is this very particular Jesus story, but in another way is a part of this much bigger universal story that is always being told. And so we might find Christ popping up in the story in a rock. We might find Christ popping up in the story in all sorts of interesting places. So these are some questions that I find helpful for me when, when I'm thinking about reading in the light of Jesus. Yeah? Okay. So um, a few minutes of, I know it's been a lot of me talking tonight. But I wanted to have a few minutes of just what are your responses to that? What are your feelings, maybe, when we talk about this? Concerns, questions, thoughts, feedback, insight, whatever you like. Is there, anyone, is, is, um, is there anything that comes to mind as we're talking about this that pops into your head? As we're thinking about everything that we've talked about tonight. Does it feel right? Does it feel dangerous? Do you reckon God changed his mind? In like some of the Old Testament things, and then so it came along in Jesus, and then he was like, oh, no, so what we're doing now is this. <laughs> so does God change his mind? Well, um, I guess that's one way of reading the story. Uh, one way of reading it might be that God was going along one way and then he thought, you know what, I'm going to come up with a different way to deal with this. And so he changes tack. Um, and goes, instead of doing all of the smiting, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do some loving. Um, and certainly I think some, some people talk about an era of grace, for example. You know, in the, in, once the Jesus story emerges, then we kind of live under this grace era. For me, the, the, the problem with that is then it says there's something fundamentally concerning about this God. <laughs> um, that's my, I guess the, the reason I wrestle with it is I feel like if Jesus tells us most fully what God is like, then... Um, then I struggle to make sense of that personally. But I think some people do look at it that way, as if Jesus changes course. He had to do that for a while, but now he decides to go this way. Yeah. yeah. Um, do you think it could be that, um, just in the context of sort of spiral dynamics and evolution of people's philosophy and things, that um, it's more that, our sort of minds had evolved to a point in this time where we could then understand a character like Jesus. And it wasn't that God changed his mind, but maybe our perception of God, we weren't evolved enough to maybe handle such a mysterious and complex issue or person. Um, did you all hear that? Oh. 
Uh, say it again. <laughs> With, you know, right into the gusto. Oh, um, because in the context of spiral dynamics, as in the evolution of our consciousness and philosophy of our existence, um, maybe instead of it being God changing his mind, uh, he's actually being quite constant, but our perception of him has changed. And at the time of Jesus, there was a change in our maybe evolution of consciousness. We were able to maybe then start to be challenged by a character like Jesus, whereas in the past we're very tribal primitive cultures and we just would have never have been able to compute that. Maybe. Then I ask that question. Okay, so if all starts with God, the first people start with God. Because God creates us, right? And then we get into a spiral where our ego takes over or we want to do it our way and then we get all tribal and primitive and warlike and try and beat one people over another. How does it get there? How does it get that far when God started it? No, yeah. I'm really bad at this. Um, the, the, like, we, um, our consciousness was so primitive in the beginning, and I think we still have tribal tendencies in our evolution of consciousness. Um, but oh, I don't know how to answer your question, so <laughs> I think, or would you like to give it a go? Yeah. More people to chip in. I think following on from what you've said, um, well, I, maybe that's why a lot of us get stressed or anxious. We're still stuck in that fight-flight reflex, which we've evolved from. But but that's still, yeah, that's still our, like, default and gets us stuck. Yeah. Um, I've also, I was kind of thinking maybe at that point, because humans weren't God. It's like God was actually bigger and he had his being being constant, but as humans we had to evolve. And um, I feel like up until the time of where Adam and Eve started and when Jesus walked this earth, there had to be a lot of work for humans to do where God allowed us to do that when he gave us free will. And we kind of driven ourselves into like a lot of despair and like wars and everything but he needed us to sort of gravel and work with it first and then send us Jesus to clarify, like, this is me in flesh. Does that make sense? Gee, this is a great conversation. Um, I love that we can have a conversation about the Bible and end up in this kind of chat. Yeah. Anyone else want to chip in on that? We're dealing here with the perception in the New Testament of more Christ-like God versus the sort of the angry God or the God who wants to wipe out women and children in the Old Testament. Is it is it a factor of perhaps the prophet, whoever recorded it got it wrong or they were putting their slant on what they thought God was 
wanting them to do uh, because I, I really struggle, you know, with that, that tension between the two concepts and I know which one I prefer and I know which one I want to live by but it's, um, it's a real fall in the flesh when you try to explain it to somebody. Um, and I'm, I mean, I know some folk explain it away as sort of being the wrath of God rather than, but it still doesn't satisfy me. <clears throat> so it's, it's still a mystery. And somebody got, somebody's got it wrong the way they've re- either recorded it because I, I just can't believe that God's nature would change from the old to the new. So some, something doesn't, somebody's got it wrong somewhere. I don't think it's God. <laughs> But my my question would be, like in New Zealand, we're all quite passive people, and we like to all be pretty PC. But my question would be, if you been in New Zealand, and America comes to uh, take over and uh, blow up and kill your family, what is your response given that? You're saying that Jesus is, or God's character is non-violent. Do you act out of what you believe his character is, or do you act out of your love for your people and for your children? This is one of the great uh, ethical questions, in fact that is debated um, probably in every ethics class in, in universities and colleges and seminaries all over the world, um, which gives us a bad shot of coming up with a definite answer to it tonight. Um, but these are very real questions to wrestle with. If, if God is, you know, because we do have this, um, this Jesus who seems to be saying those who live by the sword die by the sword um, seems to be in many respects warning the people against revolution, uh, against taking up arms because ultimately that will lead to their destruction, which in fact it does. Jerusalem is destroyed in, in AD 70, which uh, many scholars of the Gospels feel like this is a big part of what Jesus was warning them about, the, the, the consequences of of taking up violence as a way to solve this problem is only going to lead to uh, your own self-destruction or your destruction at the hands of others. But that doesn't solve our problem of what do we do um, in the face of overwhelming violence. Uh, Jesus dies and says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And that's a big thing to live up to and is that is that just idealistic to believe we could live grounded in that kind of reality or are we just able to cope with that idea because we live in a pretty peaceful part of the world and we don't have to wrestle with the very real tensions of violence in exactly the same way as other parts of the world do these are these are kind of live questions for us to wrestle with in our and our view of God as revealed in in the Jesus story I think calls us into these questions to wrestle with them and to discuss them and to try and make sense of them. Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who's a a very famous 20th century theologian, uh, German theologian, pacifist, because he believes Jesus is nonviolent, ends up um, in a plot to kill Hitler 
because he's like, I'm a pacifist and this might be wrong, but I feel like I've got to do it anyway. Uh, and so I think coming up with idealistic ideas that we can just plant over every situation and say this is the answer for everybody everywhere all the time, I think becomes a problem. Instead, we're invited, I think, into this, this the wrestle of this conversation. Um, and and the direction which Christ seems to push us, in, in my mind, is always one ultimately that is toward an outcome that might result in some kind of loving, reconciling outcome. That's the hope. And yet what we find in human experience is that that's not always possible. It's not always the reality. And so we live in that, the tension between these ideas. Um, gosh, there's lots we could say about all of this, isn't there? Every time, every time we talk about something at formation, I'm like, gosh, we've been doing formation now for nearly, well, for three and a half years, and I still feel like we scratch the surface because uh, there's so much that just gets opened up to us. And yet these are really important conversations. This is, if we look around at the world at the moment, tribalism, uh, violence, um, extremism, uh, what do we do with all of this? And this is no longer just something that floats around out there, over there somewhere. Um, but we find it present with us. And so uh, my hope is that our reading of Scripture and our forming of communities of faith actually become places where we can figure that stuff out together. We can talk about it together because uh, there's not a lot of places in the world you can sit down and have those kind of meaningful conversations uh, that might be informed not just by your political persuasion, but also by some kind of spirituality that calls us into something uh, meaningful. Katerina, I see your hand. I have more a question of to you, because I just get it all a bit confused at the moment. Because the people in the Old Testament, they spoke of a Messiah coming, didn't they? And did, came that was that out of them knowing that they're wrestling with God, who God is, and who they are, and what society is like. But they were looking; the Messiah was meant to come to fulfil some Old Testament prophecy and ideas. And I'm trying to say is that. When Jesus came, you know, with the, I guess people looked for a different Messiah, didn't they? And this, this, this Jesus is this marker in history because there's not going to be another one, is there? Not in the Christian tradition, at least. They're not saying, oh, sorry, we, that was the A model, but now we need, we need another one because we're, again, at a point where we don't understand. What was, what was Jesus' role as the Messiah for the Jewish people? So I've, I've, it's a dumb question, but... No dumb questions here. Um, man, there's like all sorts of things coming up in this conversation that could spin us in like so many directions. It's amazing. Uh, and here I thought you were going to be quiet on me for a second. Now we've ended up here. Gosh, um... Many things perhaps we could say about all of this. Uh, in relation to the Messiah, I think uh, the journey of Israel is 
this journey of trying to make sense of their own history, uh, even when we look at those passages of go in and wipe out all the people. What we also find is that after they do that, not very long later, there's a whole lot of people who still seem to be there, uh, <laughs> which means they didn't actually go in and wipe out all the people, even though that's what they said they did. Uh, and they're telling these stories much later to try and make sense of their own history. Um, and it's, it's kind of a curious, one of, the, one of the fascinating things about reading the Old Testament is that a lot of it is compiled when they're in exile and they're going back and telling their story in light of the situation they find themselves in. Uh, and often trying to paint themselves as kind of, they started out as the real heroes, uh, and then and then all of the reasons why they've probably ended up in the mess that they're in. So they're trying to make sense of that situation. Uh, and in that situation of exile, of losing everything that they thought they were promised, everything they thought was guaranteed to be theirs forever, uh, they begin to look forward and say, well, okay, everything might be desolate and hopeless, but God will find a way to deliver us one day. And so they look forward. So some of the prophets begin to speak of this um, figure who will come at some point, who will emerge from among them, who will be a king like David was. And David's their kind of archetypal hero. Uh, he will reestablish uh, the kingdom. Uh, and once again, we will be a light to the world and we will be a rich and prosperous people who will rule and reign. So that's their vision of what the Messiah is supposed to do. Um, so 200 years, I'm not going to give a, don't worry, I won't <laughs> give like a half hour answer to this question. Just a brief answer. 200 years before Jesus, um, there's an uprising against, not the Romans at that time, but a splinter, one of, one of the sort of post-Alexander the Great Greek empires, Seleucid or one of them, um, Antiochus Epiphanes IV is the, is the leader of that empire and he uh, is violent and crushing the people and forcing them to make sacrifices to pagan gods in their temple, which they find terrible. You know, they've come back from Babylon and rebuilt and now they find themselves in this situation. Uh, and a rebellion is led by Judas Maccabeus, uh, who leads an uprising uh, and they push out the, um, the armies of the Greeks, for, at least for a time. And many people thought Judas was the Messiah. He was the one that was promised because he was leading them to victory. Um, and in the end, he gets, he gets killed in the, in the course of battle. Uh, and so uh, they're looking for someone like that. Why Judas is a popular name in the first century. People would name their kids Judas, hoping they'd be the Messiah, you know. Um, which is... <laughs> I think a, a wonderful kind of irony, isn't it, of, of the gospel stories. Uh, and so Jesus' vision is that somehow simply getting us back to, is defeating the Romans, reclaiming our nation uh, and ruling and reigning and being powerful is not fundamentally going to um, fix the problem that not just we have, that, but that all human communities and societies are having, which is the way in which we destroy one another and ourselves. And so instead of just trying to put this 
um, kingdom back together again like it was in the time of David, which will inevitably just take us back into the cycles of violence and of self-destruction. Um, he offers a different way to bring about transformation. And instead of it being about um, military conquest, it becomes about the transformation of one's heart. It becomes the giving up of oneself in order to see life come to others. And that is the way Jesus understands the, his fulfilling of what the Messiah really comes to do. And so rather than military conquest, it becomes uh, transformation, not just for the Jewish people, but in fact, a transformation that is opened up to the world. That's my reading of at least some of what's going on in, the, in Jesus' fulfilment of his role as Messiah. <sighs> we didn't even get, I didn't even get into spiral dynamics um, or evolutionary consciousness. Um, maybe we can carry that on over dinner. Maybe we'll have to do a whole uh, formation series on it sometime. Um, we're going to continue this conversation in two weeks' time. We're going to brilliantly sum up all of our thoughts um, Linda and I, we're going to ask Linda all the really complicated questions. Um, now we're going to have a conversation about um, scripture and transformation. So how does our engagement with this text actually enable our own transformation as we somehow find God present here? So that's what we're going to do next time. I love the fact that all of these things emerge in conversation. We can't answer them all because in fact answering them all is kind of not exactly the point. It's actually journeying together with them. Cool? You all okay with that? Okay. Let's say a prayer. Which God shall we pray to? Um, <laughs> we'll pray to the, we'll pray, <laughs> we should pray to the nice one. Uh, okay. Uh, God, thank you for being present, that you are present to us somehow. We are present to you and to one another. Um, we are connected and bound together even when we find ourselves apart. Would you continue to guide us, speak to us, nudge us in the right direction as we continue to figure out what it means to be human, what it means to know God, what it means to love one another, even when that gets really complicated. Would you be present as we eat and continue to talk? In Jesus' name, amen.